Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all. In episode 103, I was blessed to interview Dr. Judd Burton about demonology. Dr. Burton offers a course on demonology on his website, tioba.org. Contact him at professorburton at yahoo.com to find out more about that and many other courses he offers. This interview was such a blessing to me, and if it's a blessing to you, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, I want to encourage you to check out my Patreon page, patreon.com slash Baker, where you'll get access for $5 or more a month to two videos that I make each month. One, uh, a tutorial video on how to play one of my songs, and also a video detailing either an early Christian or early Christian writings. The latest uh, video in that regard is on Second Clement, which is the earliest Christian sermon outside the Bible that we have on record. So please go check that out. Also, I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK and Kurt, who are doing just an awesome, awesome job putting out great contact for us every week. So please go check that out as well. Lastly, the early Christian quotes that I use can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can purchase for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website, scrollpublishing.com. All right, well, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get into my interview with Dr. Judd Burton. Dr. Judd Burton, thank you so much for uh, for coming on Reclaiming the Faith, man. This is, a, this is definitely a privilege for me. My pleasure. Thank you. Yes, sir. Well, uh, I know a lot of my audience does know about you, uh, but for those that don't, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a follower of Jesus? Sure. Uh, well, just a little bit about my academic background. Uh, I'm primarily a, a early church, Greco-Roman world historian. Uh, I have a PhD in history with a focus on religion uh, in the ancient world from Texas Tech University. also have a master's degree in anthropology and history from the same institution. And um, I, uh, I have a bachelor's degree in history from Hardin-Simmons University in Abilene. And uh, like I say, you know, I, I sort of wear the shoes of three different professions, historian, anthropologist, and archaeologist, because I've, I've done work in all fields. And so I'm, I'm, I'm broadly uh, equipped, you know, as a humanities scholar. I have some language training, too, and um, Greek and Latin, uh, ancient Near Eastern languages like Hebrew and uh, uh, some hier- Egyptian hieroglyphs, and a little bit of a little bit of uh, Mesopotamian stuff, um, and some modern language um, material as well. I, I um, uh, wrote my dissertation on the religious history of uh, Peneus, Caesarea Philippi, which we can get into uh, later. Um, but, but in terms of, of my faith, which is married to my scholarship, um, uh, you know, I've been an academic for 20 years. Uh, I've taught at uh, a number of, of institutions, um, history, ancient history, medieval, uh, anthropology, archaeology, religion, mythology, humanities. I've taught a little bit of everything within the purview of the humanities. Um, but my... Uh, my scholarship, that is my identity as a scholar, is also married to my faith. And that's that's the important anchor in all of this for me, is my faith. I, I was raised in the Southern Baptist Church and came to know Christ uh, when I was about 10 years old. And um, 
it was a I had a blessed upbringing in, in terms of my family because I was raised in a Christian home. Um, all those those things were modeled for me very well, and um, my maternal grandmother and and great aunt and uncle were also very influential. Um, the uh, I was I was introduced to archaeology and ancient history in that church. The the brother-in-law of uh, our pastor when I was 10 was a, an archaeologist and a, a professor of New Testament. And I actually later studied Greek under him and Hardin Simmons, the late Dr. George Knight, who was one of my great mentors, very godly man, very erudite scholar, one of the most brilliant men I've ever known. And when I was knee-high to a grasshopper, he would, uh, he, he would, he would listen to all my questions. You know, I must have been this pesky little kid <laughs> asking about everything, but he, he really took me under his wing uh, and taught me the rudiments of archaeology and biblical scholarship and historical scholarship. And um, so very early on, you know, I, I had that, you know, it was that, that mixture of, of um, well, it was a decide. it was a kind of discipleship really, uh, and you throw all things, those things together and a, a, a convicted and contrite spirit, even even at 10. And uh, that's how I came to Christ. And uh, it, it's been, you know, as anybody, you know, who professes Christ, who has a relationship with Jesus, it's the defining relationship in their life. Yeah. Man, praise God. Um, and I, th- I think one thing you didn't, you didn't say quite yet about your background is that you're offering uh, some different, um, is it certifications? Through- yeah, there's these 12 course um, certifications on some other per- pertinent topics, I think. Um, you know, context is very important for understanding um, the biblical narrative and, and its history and its theology as well. Um, you know, I, in fact, you know, I, I've said before, context is theology. You know, it doesn't matter what you think. I mean, it, it matters to an extent, you know, not being dismissive, but um, it matters what's being said. And it, that has to be understood in the, the context of the, the worldview, the language, uh, and all that. That's where the theology lies, not, you know, not in some, you know, extended hermeneutic, you know, that that ventures way out into left field or something like that. And, you know, we, we all make those kinds of, of, I suppose, doctrinal, you know, misinterpretations or whatever, but that's part of the reason that I came up with the biblical anthropology certification, because it does, it is that deep dive into the geography and the history and the geopolitics and the culture and the religions of the biblical world, even, even a sprinkling of apocrypha and, uh, languages too and the um the biblical demonology was the certification that came next and um its importance is all should be self-evident um i I mean when you consider that that probably a good third of jesus's ministry was was that sort of thing uh you know it it comes with the territory when you take up your cross uh that's part of the you know that's part of the job and in the in the wider context, the cosmic context, you know, of, of this war between good and evil, um, you know, it shouldn't surprise anybody, you know, um, especially after discipleship, uh, that this has to be part of part of the faith. And, and we're living in a time when I think, you know, the prophetic clock is ticking. I, I'm not a date setter, nor am I a prophet. I, I'm, but I can I can see the meta picture. Yeah. Um, using the tools that I've been, you know, that that I've gained along the way, yeah. in terms of my scholarship. Um, so, um, the it, the biblical demonology coursework uh, deals with, um, you know, the the same kind of thing I've been doing for a number of years, really. Uh, beginning with books like Interview with the Giant, uh, applying anthropological models to the study of of the demonic and and the giants, and uh, in, in applying anthropological models in general uh, to the Bible, and um, so lo- looking at at 
the demonic world in terms of its hierarchy, a, a culture of demons, if you will. Um, there, there's coursework in biblical demonology. Um, Merrill Unger's biblical demonology is a textbook for for the class of that name. Um, and again, that's that's kind of self-evident. The the, the latest sort of um, um, extension of that is the certification in preternatural morphology, uh, and that's kind of a that's like a twenty-five dollar word for saying how demons manifest in folklore and myth, yeah. and so you're looking at things that often get peripheralized, uh, but are demonic nonetheless, uh, and, and leave a leave a track record in the history and cultures of the world. Uh, things like vampires and werewolves and revenants and uh, ghouls and all manner of folklore creatures, which which are are very clearly demonic. Mm. You know, they, none of these entities. Uh, you know, have the the best interests, much less the eternal interest of people that they plague. And so, looking at, at at those those things through the lens of the Bible is the is the basic track of uh, the preternatural morphology um, coursework. And I'm running a special this week, and I, each one of those is 125 dollars a piece. So it's a good time to. Um, to click in on that if you're feeling led to study these. And I, and I made them flexible, you know, for people. Uh, I realize, you know, people are working and have families and, um, you know, money's tight for a lot of people these days. And so I wanted to make them flexible and, and affordable. Um, now, the, there's, I, I do offer some graduate work, um, more extensive involved work, and there'll be more certification programs more expansive certification programs which will run a little bit more uh once they're developed and, and deployed uh but right now is a really good time uh to get on these uh, these these deals and i also launched if people are interested in, in studying uh, uh greek i've got a rudiments of new testament greek uh course uh that people can take advantage of and if if they're interested, they can email me at professorburton at yahoo.com uh, and we can get you registered. And where can they go to find some of these? Is this burtonbeyond.com? Uh, yeah. And, well, with a caveat that I am in the process of upgrading my my websites. Um, so they're a little bit in transition right now, but uh, uh, if you if people want to email me and ask about the, the program, I can send them uh, some information about it. Uh, but like I say, I, you know, I, I, in, in a general way, I just laid out the curriculum for each one of those programs. Um, but uh, you uh, you can also go to the institute website, which is tioba.org, uh, and there's a, there's a, some information there too. Awesome, and I'll, I'll have links to all that stuff in the show notes. Thank you for doing that, man. Like, oh, gosh, talking about a course in demonology, like. I was thinking about Mark chapter one and he comes, uh-huh. you know, Jesus starts preaching the kingdom of God at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then I believe it's seven times that either the word demon or evil spirit occurs mm-hmm. in that first chapter. So mm-hmm. it seems like that was a pretty yeah, just big, right off the bat. Yeah. It's like a pretty big part of Jesus's ministry, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So can you tell us a little bit about Banyas and Caesarea Philippi yeah. and its connections to, to demons? Yeah, certainly. Um, well, you know, it's part of my journey. Um, as I was coming to the close of my, my undergraduate studies at Hardin-Simmons, um, the aforementioned Dr. Knight, who was who was my mentor, uh, had had encouraged me to go on an expedition that the the college or the university uh was about was going to undertake. Uh, they had been sending students to Bonius to to excavate. Uh, he said, "You really should go. You know, um, you know, it'll 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 give you the rudiments of of the science of archaeo- field archaeology, and uh, it'll be, it'll be a good experience for you." And uh, said, great, you know. So that's I signed up, and um, you know, in my mind, it. it there wasn't anything, you know, necessarily spiritual about the trip. I mean, it was going to be cool to get to see Israel and and to to do the archaeology. But I, you know, my main goal was, you know, I was there for the science, there for the, you know, 
the process, the learning the rudiments of archaeology. Uh, and I, I did do that uh, under the likes of, of the late Vasilius Seferis and uh, um, Dr. John Laughlin, who uh, lives in, in uh, he, he was teaching at Averitt. He, he's written a number of books on the Bible. Um, but uh, that old silver fox, I, I wouldn't know anything about archaeology if it wasn't for him. Uh, he was tough. Um, but uh, in the months leading up to the the departure i i was reading everything that i could on caesarea philippi you know there were a couple of master's thesis in the um uh, in the library there at the seminary and um nothing too exhaustive but enough to give me some 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 good you know material to work with in terms of its history and uh I, I I shouldn't say stumble, you know. God put this in front of me, but uh, I began to to realize that you know the geographical location of this place it was at the foot of Mount Hermon, and uh, I, I read an article, you know, talking about the Watchers and the Nephilim being associated with Mount Hermon. I thought. That's really interesting, and so I, I at that point I began reading, you know, all this apocryphal material, you know, like Enoch. That's what, when I discovered Enoch and uh, the Genesis Apocryphon and some of this other stuff from the Dead Sea Scrolls that talked about. It. And so, you know, once I found that, you know, I I spent an hour at the copier, you know, copying all this stuff off, and I, you know, I was just I, I was just amazed. I was like, oh my gosh, this is Ground Zero yeah. for for Genesis six. Mm. Um, you know the Watcher incursion, um, and and so you know with that on my mind as we're leaving, you know, um, it be- it became the trip became not only a, a a class you know classroom or a laboratory for learning all this stuff, but you know it it also became a kind of pilgrimage for me. Um, you know, as I, it, it was just another thing that opened my eyes to the spiritual significance, the cosmic significance of the struggle between good and evil. You know, and every day, you know, at Bonius, we were, I mean, although we were working on a, a you know, first century era palace there, um, we were always working in the shadow of Mount Hermon. You know, it was just looming, you know, right there. Mm. And, um, you know, that was the first part of the discovery was the work that I started at, at Bonius. Yeah. And um, I sort of said, you know, set that, that work aside, not the interest, but, you know, being directly involved in, uh, I suppose, biblical antiquities, because I felt like I had, I, I needed, I needed more tools um, uh, than just field archaeology. I needed the cultural anthropology, the folklore stuff to also uh, begin to, you know, deconstruct some of the problems that I was coming up with. And that's why I opted instead of doing a, you know, a master's in classics where I would, re, you know, basically be rehashing all the Greco-Roman stuff and the language that I had done. Um, I opted to uh, to study anthropology. Yeah. Uh, and I continued my, my work in, in archaeology uh, and got experience, you know, all over the world, you know, all over the state of Texas. I've done archaeology on both sides of the globe um, while picking up this cultural, you know, ethnological toolkit that could help me understand, you know, religion and folklore and even the Bible uh, from a, an anthropological perspective. Uh, but it was it was when I uh, when I decided to go back to history. Uh, and began my PhD studies uh, that I, I picked it back up, you know, the, the queries that I had about Caesarea Philippi and my advisor, my dissertation advisor was, was very encouraging about developing a, 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 a basically a history of the religion of Bonius Um which had, had not completely been done. You know, there certainly have been dissertations and, and works on Bonius. 
Um, but there was not one that sort of used things like like anthropology and sacred geography and microhistory and some of these other other tools to understand the 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 history of the site and it's not a theological work uh it's a history of religions work um but uh it you can see the theology behind it is is you know if you're you're your friend are reading it right now um it sort of tells the story you know from the beginning to you know almost to the modern era of you know the the reuse of the site the importance of the creation of of sacred space by uh the watchers yeah you know in in prehistory you know because like i say this is ground zero this is where the watchers you know the sons of god the benachel Lahim, you know came down and that's where the you know the corruptive this corruptive influence that that contributed to uh the degradation of humanity and you know basically the the destruction of the surface of the planet uh you know that that was the seed of wickedness, mm. um, or certainly one of them. You know, yeah. we would consider, you know, Satan, you know, right. the Nakash, as the first part of that. But this was this was an epiphenomenal seed of that. Um, and can I, ask uh, a, can I ask a quick question? Yeah, absolutely. This is just coming to my mind a couple of days ago, and uh, there's nothing new under the sun. So I'm not trying to act like this originated, you know, in, in my head or whatever, but. Um, I was thinking about the proto Evangelion or whatever from Genesis mm-hmm. three, and you know the the promise that God's making, prophecy that He's making about the seed of the woman, you know, crushing the head of the seed of the the serpent. I believe that that mm-hmm. word is uh, Zera. Is that right? Uh, offspring, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so, do you think it's possible that these rebellious angels? in Genesis six are acting upon a belief that they can have offspring based on that prophecy from Genesis three. I think in, in many ways, yes, they are. Um, and and clearly they had a, you know, clearly they did have offspring, right. Or they or or developed them or created them because of the way, you know, that sets the precedent for these extra dimensional beings, basically, uh, manipulating matter, yeah. you know, in our, you know, to kind of put it in dimensional quantum terms, you know, we get that in the Bible too, first heaven, second heaven, third heaven, so forth. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I think very clearly that's, that's the precedent. Okay. Sorry to interrupt you, brother. No, 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 no. Um, but I, I, I think, I, I think I'd basically finished my train of thought. Okay. Um, but the, um, what's interesting about, the the long lasting connection, the legacy of the Watchers at Bonius is that uh, you know one of the one of the most culpable of the Watchers was Azazel, mm-hmm. and Azazel, of course, was is associated with the goat. Anybody who reads Leviticus knows about the atonement sacrifice. The, right. the go to Azazel, you know, one is sent off into the desert or thrown off, you know, a, a, a a cliff into you know on the jagged rocks, right. all that's mi- mimics the the punishment uh, that Azazel gets uh, in uh, books like you know Enoch, First Enoch. Um, but what's interesting is that you have this procession of, of goat deities, uh, and for folks that e- that read either either my dissertation or Paneus, which is a kind of distillation, um, you know, it's a book that. Um, I wrote uh, that uh, it's not the exact same thing as my dissertation because there's some other trajectories that I follow. Um, and uh, it's on sale this week, too. And um, what's interesting is that, you know, o- over the the ancient history and, and even into the, the late antique and, and medieval history of the region, these goat deities, uh, you know, continue to be associated with that region now now the big one of course is pan where the name of the place actually derives from it's mentioned as Caesarea philippi in matthew chapter 16 and mark chapter 8 uh, only because you know for a brief time uh, uh 
when it was a, a, a thriving city, uh, it, it was, you know, this kind of a nod to Caesar, you know, um, you had Herod Philip, you know, giving it the designation Caesarea. Um, but its original name was Paneus, uh, or the Paneon, which is an association, of course, with the Greek god Pan, uh, whose shrine was designated in a cave at the, the southwestern edge of Mount Hermon, uh, the Grotto of Pan, if you will. And um, But in my mind, this is just a continuation of something that began in prehistory and, and rebooted in the, the early post-flood world. Uh, because as I say, there are any number of, of goat deities uh, and goat half-goat, half-man creatures that are associated with the region. Uh, even the Hebrews, you know, had the uh, the Shedrim, mm-hmm. uh, the hairy ones, which are satyrs, essentially. Yeah. Um, the uh, they were Isaiah, gods-like. Right? That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, chapter 34, I believe. And you had, uh, in the Mesopotamian world, you had deities like Bennu, uh, whose name is even phonetically similar to mm, mm. Uh, Pan and probably speaks to, you know, the Eastern origins of a lot of the, the Greek deities. We know that that's, that's, been, that's been confirmed, that the Greeks believed that a lot of their deities were from the East. Mm. And um, you had, you had um, uh, deities like Adzaga, whose name retains uh the the word for goat odds or uds in yeah. in most semitic uh dialects and um you know any any number of them uh uh the one of the chief gods of the amorites uh, you know maru was a goat you know shepherd deity um so there was really a profusion you know of you know it, uh, of these deities there's a profession you know procession of them from the time of the watchers mm. and in my mind that's a continuation of this cult that was established in in prehistory um at the behest of the watchers and uh, azazel was probably the head of it yeah. um you know azazel is associated with not just teaching mankind witchcraft and um uh, women had a you know use cosmetics or, or whatever, but uh, also metallurgy yeah. and warcraft. And, you know, uh, Pan is, you know, a lot of, you don't see this on the surface, but Pan was associated with both of those, you know, all of those things. Right. Um, he was a, a lusty, you know, character. And uh, um, he, uh, the Greeks believed that he helped the Olympians overthrow the Titans um his his name is where we get the word panic from he had a war cry that was supposed to terrify and paralyze people um so there are all there's all this connective tissue you know beginning in prehistory going all the way through antiquity and even in in later you know later years let's say the late roman and and the po- the post roman world of late antiquity uh where there were there were um, things like Al Qaeda. Once the Muslims uh, took over Banias, uh, Al Qaeda is is the green one mm. uh, in their their saint saint catalog, their hagiography, um, and uh, some. Uh, well, I should say some. A lot of people associate Al Qaeda with Saint George. Interestingly enough, whose name means you know George in Greek, is, uh, Georgos means gardener or farmer. So there's this sort of natural element, you know, that you would find amongst Pan. So it, you know, it just sort of, you know, there's clearly a, a, a clearly a principality of some kind. Yeah, an etymological uh, etymological. Uh, yeah. How do you say that? Etymological link. Etymo- it's a mouthful. Yeah, etymological. Yeah, <laughs> here it is. Yeah. Well, I there mean, and is. that's just—I mean—that's one part of the equation. You know, there's—it's the the language component. It's the um, uh, it's the culture. It's the reuse of the well. First of all, the creation of sacred space. Yeah. And then the re- reuse and recycling of sacred space. Why? Why do you think? Jesus chose Caesarea Philippi to be the place where he 
first tells his disciples that he's going to suffer and die and rise again? Well, because that's the vanguard of, of his entire mission. Um, and he, he, he chose Caesarea Philippi uh, because of the, you know, its significance, its cultural and, and religious significance for his disciples would not have been lost on them. And, and even Jews that would have lived in Caesarea Philippi and, and likely even the, the native Eterians who were basically Greco-Roman culturally would have been familiar with the, the, the stories about what, had, what the Jews believed had happened at Mount Hermon. Um, you know, so he's, he's intentionally going there and, and firing a shot over uh, the bow of the enemy because, you know, again, it's ground zero where the watchers um, descend to the, the east of that. You have um, Bashan, uh, Og's old kingdom, which at the time was called Batania, which is Latinized. Uh, to the east, you had, or excuse me, to the west, you had um, uh, the apostate tribe of Dan, uh, their land, and of course, that the, the region of the Golan, uh, um, and and John, uh, Bashan in particular, um, and the Ugaritic material is referenced as the the place of the serpent. And um, you know there are some interesting discoveries uh, in recent years. My my good buddy Doctor uh, Doug Van Dorn um, discovered something called the Serpent Mound. There, this uh, you know if you look at it from the aerial view, it's it's clearly serpentine, um, and the fact that that there were ancient peoples like the Phoenicians who were calling this the land of the serpents, um, to me speaks volumes about, you know, uh, all of those traditions would have been alive uh, and, and very much in the, the, very much to the fore in the minds of, of Jesus' disciples. And so none of this stuff would have been lost on them. You know I mean? It, because Jesus is using this, this, backdrop that was pregnant with me all kinds of cultural and religious meaning for them yeah but if you just read if you just you know do a cursory reading of those passages in in matthew 16 and mark 8 you you don't really see that yeah you know because it just seems like okay well you know john the baptist was beheaded and jesus and the boys went to you know Phoenicia for a little while, and then they went to Caesarea Philippi. All of this is outside of the the jurisdiction of of Herod Antipas, so you know it just sort of looks like okay. Well, they're just taking a little detour, you know, to avoid some trouble or whatever. So much. It's so much more than that. So much more. Like I, I don't know if you've been watching the Chosen series. Like it, uh, it's on my to watch list. Yes. Yeah, like I mean, the character development is just incredible. It's it's kind of loosely hanging to scripture, but it's probably the most like realistic version of like what what a disciple would act like. It's sort of like just their human yeah. reactions, you know. Sure, that's that's incredible. Yeah, so like yeah. recently, I think it was either in the last episode or the one before that, um, they've they've been traveling through Caesarea Philippi, and mm-hmm. you can tell like they're a little bit nervous about it. But yeah. like the stuff that you're saying really helps shed light that like when he's talking about the gates of hell, of course, there's the, the place at the grotto called the gates of hell. Yeah, the gates but, of hell. But yeah. it's like it's like the heart of evil. Like this whole area is just like from, yeah. a, from a Jewish perspective then in, in Second Temple, like this is the heart of where all evil is. Yeah. And, you know, they're, you know. The, in terms of the cardinal directions in, in Jewish culture at the time, um you know, north was the direction of where evil was, and this was as far north as you you could go within the you know the traditional bounds of, of Israel was you know the old uh, from uh, from Dan to Beersheba. Of course, Tel Dan is just right across the valley from Banias. Yeah, man, that's cool. That's cool. Um, so you've 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 been referencing some stuff from from First Enoch when you're of course the Watchers are talked about in Daniel four, but. Obviously, mm-hmm. that they're like the main evil players, the you know antagonists in, uh, in mm-hmm. the first Enoch. Um, how how do you think Christians should think about non canonical books like First Enoch, but you know that are also part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, so or pseudepigraphal stuff? But yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, in 
they they certainly should be given consideration uh, not in terms of canonicity i'm not saying they're i'm not equating them with canon yeah. but they do culturally and historically inform if not theologically inform uh the biblical narrative and particularly in cases where you have uh works like jubilees and jasher and particularly enoch in you know jude mm-hmm. jude is basically a you know copy and paste yeah. from passages in enoch if we believe that as christians that the bible is the inspired word of god then it stands to reason that he inspired the people the authors to the books of of you know the old and new testament to reference yeah. these books these apocryphal books and it, you know it gets really interesting when you begin to consider you know the caretakers of this literature the essenes um you know what their stance was uh you know i mean in the second temple period um they basically had had it you know with the temple bureaucracy the pharisees and the sadducees the sadducees in particular uh, but they saw all that as a corrupted system. That's why they left and, you know, it went to the coast of the Dead Sea to form these monastic communities like Qumran. Yeah. Um, and these were, uh, you know, there were uh, Jewish people who were, who were geared towards the eschatological. I mean, they were expecting the Messiah. Yeah. You know, they, they, uh, you know, the, the stuff that John the Baptist, you know, talks about in heralding Jesus's arrival, you know, is straight out of of what the Essenes, you know, believed, and and so, you know, once you delve into that, it, it's hard to turn a blind eye to its importance, mm. um, and so, uh, you know, and I, I think the timing of the, the the discovery of those documents is important too, because the the first big cache of Dead Sea Scrolls is discovered in 1947, just a short while before the uh, the establishment of the nation of Israel. Yeah. All right. So what are some ways, well, let me, let me back up. First Enoch talks about, and I don't remember the chapter, I think it may be like 15 where it says that the, the children of these giants are called, are the demons. Is that mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. You're talking about the the judgment that that God gives to Enoch to give to the uh, the Watchers and the Giants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I guess that's kind of what Jesus may be pulling from in like Luke 11 when he's talking about these things going around in arid places, yeah. looking for a house. Yeah. yeah, again, yeah, again. If you just read this stuff on the surface, it's hard to connect it back to that, but. Um, you know the when Enoch is telling him all this stuff, you know he he says you know you're the the giants you know when they're destroyed in this deluge uh, are basically going to become unclean spirits and isn't it interesting that that is a one of the prominent words used for demon mm. uh, in the New Testament now of course it's in Greek but it's the same phraseology unclean spirit. Um, and why would so, that be? Why why do you think he chose? The, the the author chose unclean spirit there of in first Enoch. Well, because they they were they were you know the the giants were aberrant you know they were not part of the natural creative process um, you know they were a product of of you know let's just say the you know the overarching Luciferian plan yeah. uh, they weren't part of Yahweh's plan um, and you know we. You know, it's it's interesting that it, that when you see cases of demonic, um, pos- you know, possession or demonization, whatever appellation you want, you know, the the terminology there becomes a little less utilitarian. You know, do, I mean, does it really matter if they're indwelling or they're outside? You know, hampering, you know, whatever. People are having problems with demons. Um, <laughs> if sorry to laugh at that, it's not. Funny. Well, I, you know, yeah. I, I'm not. I didn't say it dismissively, but yeah, um, De- demonized, uh, right? Being demonized, demonized exactly. Yeah, yeah. demonized. Um, you know, the incredible strength, the yeah. the knowledge that you know they're not supposed to have, mm. being able to speak languages that they've never been exposed to. Mm. That all begins to make sense when you when you understand that these were the spirits of the Nephilim, mm. who were who had thousands, you know, 
thousands, probably thousands of years of, of knowledge poured into them. They were Im- immensely powerful, so much so that they they contributed to the destruction of humanity before humanity was even completely destroyed in the deluge. You know, they fought wars against each other. They 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 killed off their own kind, and when they when they exhausted their own resources, they turned on humanity. Um, so yeah, and this it, it's interesting that you referenced that passage because it sets up the really the, the core theology uh, for biblical demonology. That these, you know, and it, it, that's not often, it, it's usually taught that that the demons are all uh, watcher angels or fallen angels. Mm. Um, that can't be the case, right. you know, just looking at it in terms of the context, the language, the culture. Uh, because if, if Jesus is using the same kind of terminology that's used, let's say, in the, the the context of of Enoch, that that's that too is very significant. It's theologically relevant, and once again, it's the context that you find the theology in. Mm. That's good, man. Um, so you reference like uh, like super strength, um, violent kind of actions, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. like a false. I guess it's not a. I don't know the right terminology to use. I was going to go glossolalia with with tongues, but it's not a spiritual gift, obviously. But their spirit—that's <laughs> yeah. speaking a language yeah. that they were familiar with. So it's not an un- unknown language. It's it's a known well, language. I mean, to yeah, them. I mean, just imagine. I mean, the world's been their classroom for yeah thousands of years. Yeah, we're their entertainment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're not playing the PS4. They're playing people. Uh, yeah, in a word, in a word. Um, I was also making me think of like Mark five with um, Legion. Uh, mm-hmm. How there's like a fascination, fascination with death, and going out to the tombs. Mm-hmm. And and stop me if I'm if I'm you know not doing this right. But like, uh, there's a mutilation aspect, like self mutilation. Mm-hmm. And of course, these things yeah. can happen without someone being demonized. But these are sure. this would be signs of, like classic signs of, yeah, um, like a, a, a driving away from community, from like biblical community. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm stuck there. But uh, I don't. know. What are some other like? I guess the word a word could be manifestations, uh, ways the demons manifest themselves. And what do you think are some reasons for those? Um, uh, expressions. Well, I, you know, I, sometimes it's it's more subtle. It can be more subtle. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think I think we can see that in our our own society in terms of of you know, um, you know, politicians, people in power, mm-hmm. uh, people that willingly give themselves over to mm-hmm. these entities. Um, you know, the power play may not may not be so much to the fore. In other words, the supernatural may be, you know, almost completely veiled. Hmm. Uh, but but their actions speak, you know, their ideologies speak to uh, the demonic. And so, you know, that's sort of, uh, you know, that's the hiding in plain sight. And again, hmm. these entities have had, you know, they've got thousands of years on us in terms of, of you know, strategizing and, and, uh, whatnot. Now that that doesn't mean that that we're that they can't be defeated or that people can't be helped uh, because we serve a God that's you know inordinately more powerful than these other entities. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think this is a manifestation that's becoming should to the church should becoming more clear. Uh, than it ever has before, um, but it's it's you know the the ideological power play, the the political power play, the 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 social engineering. Um, you know these are the subtler, you know more longitudinal kinds of activities of demons. And I, I wrote a a paper earlier this year on the manipulation of language and the 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 preservation of 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 words like refaim or rapa or 
or Raba or uh, Rapaumi, these variations in the in the ancient Near East, uh, and and all of the you know R vowel initial R vowel words um, that that have re- survived mm. from antiquity and and prehist probably prehistory uh, as words for king or ruler. I don't you know a handful of those would be interesting, but the number that I ran into was compelling. Mm. Um, so this sort of, you know, 3d chess approach, uh, is definitely a a manifestation, but it's, it's subtler, you know, it's not, it's not the screaming, violent, you know, curse hurling, you know, super physically powerful. This is the subtler manifestation. From what you're saying, it seems like, and again, stop me if I'm going on a wrong direction, but it seems like kind of like the way God seems to be attracted to weakness in a sense, like um, blessed are the poor in spirit mm-hmm. uh, in Matthew 5, 3, and then like in uh, 2 Corinthians 10 or 12, 2 Corinthians 12, how Paul's saying like in our weakness, God is strong. Our God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Like he likes to yeah. take people that are humbling and lift them up. It seemed kind of like you're saying like the the demonic spirits are attracted to positions of power. Yeah, because they they you know, they they created a false sense of empowerment. Mm. You know, in the the pre-flood world and they don't want to give that up. Yeah. Um and you know, the when does that stop? Well, our probably our, our eschatological clue is in you know the uh, in the you know the full the fullness of the Gentiles. You know, this is mm. a, a phrase that you see. You know, um, Romans eleven. Yeah, Romans eleven. Um, when will that be? Uh, whenever God says that, okay, humanity, you've had enough time. You know, all the nations have had time to to be evangelized and, and whatnot, you know, again, they, these entities know that, you know, they've been on the clock, you know, since the get go. Um, so they're trying to, so much of what they do is to try and stave the, the, the fulfillment of, the fullness of the Gentiles because that's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a holding pattern, not exactly a win, you know, for them, but it staves off, you know, in their minds, they, it staves off the judgment of Yahweh. Uh, But even in, even in that contention, they're, you know, they're misguided and and mistaken. Is that, but that seems to, I'm sorry, dude, go go ahead. I was just going to ask, is that what you think, uh, Legion says in Mark five, like, have you come to torment us before the time? Is that? Yeah, that's thinking? exactly what they're saying. Yeah, okay. yeah. And that's uh, awesome, man. Yeah, Fullness of the, that's so cool. Well, I mean, it it it's and again, you know that that passage in in Romans eleven. If you're just reading it, you might not even think about you know how much eschatological significance that has much less any connection with uh, the world of the watchers of the giants but uh, again context 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 is theology wow <laughs> this is awesome man i really <laughs> enjoy this um, so what what are some things that people can do either accidentally or intentionally that could increase the likelihood that they will be demonized well you know People outside of the faith, you know, are already more susceptible to that. And that's certainly, but that's, you know, people in the faith who are Christians, that doesn't mean that you can't be, you know, demonized. And, and, you know, again, not using, uh, you know, sort of provocative words like possession or, you know, to give the Hollywood image. But, um, you know, we're all susceptible. I mean, none of us is infallible. You know, and we all have, you know, I'm guilty of it. You know, we have points where we, you know, might might become lax in our mm. our our relationship, and you know that 
that can open up, you know, toeholds, so to speak, mm. you know, for these entities begin chipping away at you. Um, but again, you know, that, that, that doesn't speak to somebody's, you know, you know, it doesn't speak to their eternity. Uh, it, it, you know, yeah. if they're a believer, um, but you know, we're all under demonic attack. Right. You know, if, if, if you're, if you're following the precepts of Jesus that he lays out and you've got a relationship with him and you're, you're doing everything you can to answer the call that he's given you on your life, you're going to be under demonic attack. And if you're not, you probably should be worried hmm. uh, because you're not even a blip on the radar screen. Hmm. Um, you know, and we don't want to be, you know, we don't want to be the the Christians at the Church of Laodicea. We don't want to be the the, the lukewarm uh, Christians. You know, who Jesus spews out of his mouth. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of interesting that archaeologists just within the past year have found the church at Laodicea. I think that's also prophetically significant, by the way. Wow. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's just again, you know, you're talking about a third of at least a third of Jesus's ministry. Yeah. So were that were the disciples under demonic attack? Was G- Jesus under demonic attack all the time? Yeah. I mean, you hardly turn a page in the in the Gospels without you know running into something. You know, some of it's more overt than others, but yeah. Wow. So I was like contrasting in my mind um, Acts nineteen in Ephesus with the seven sons of Sceva, mm-hmm. um, kind of pridefully without being under God's authority, trying to use the name of Jesus and kind of back, right. backfires on them to say the least. Right. Versus, so that's like doing something bad versus again, uh, Paul in Second Corinthians 12, not because he did anything bad, but because he was doing the right thing. And I'd like to get your, your quick take on that. Cause it says like he was given an angelos, right? Of Satan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you think that, wh- what do you think that that is? Because like on just a plain reading, it would appear to be like God allowing a bad angel to torment him, even though God's using that for good to keep him from yeah, being to, re- to refine. Yeah, yeah. Um, all of those entities are, are, are still under the rank and file of, of the angelic hierarchy, which means that, even though they're fallen, they're still under the direct control. Yeah. Yahweh says jump, they have to say how high. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's certainly not outside the realm of possibility that, that God is using them. I mean, here, you know, we're circling back here, you know, if, if we get, if we backslide, you know, in our faith at some point in time, that's not to say that God, you know, won't let, you know, one of these entities um, hamper us for our our own refinement. Mm. But it's only you know, it's always just up to a point. You know, I think about Job. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, he comes in and uh, uh, you know, Satan says, uh, you know, here's Job. You know, you take all this stuff he's got away from you, he's going to curse you. And God says, well, you can torment him, but you can't kill him. Uh, so there's that that reigning in, you know, the precedent of that, and so I think, I think that passage that you reference is is an, another example uh, of you know the way that God can still use those entities uh, to His own ends. I mean, they they have no power to refuse. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of interesting. It was reminding the Job um, citation remind me. I think it's Matthew twenty six, Luke twenty two, where Jesus after the disciples are like boasting and Peter, especially like, even if all these fools run away, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm with you to the end. And he says, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. So Satan had to ask permission to sift, Mm -hmm. you know, y'all, the the plural disciples, but I've prayed for you. Right. And so like, even, even in that, it's almost like God's going to use that, that time of pride where Peter denies him to strengthen him for the future so that he, he never denies him again. And he, right. not because of pride, but because of humility almost. Right. For what's coming up in Acts. 
All right, we just got a couple more questions. Um, kind of bringing it home. Uh, I, I was remembering you were you were saying at least when in your younger years you were you had some experience in uh, deliverance. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's something everybody like seeks out. Sometimes it's just kind of you kind of get thrust into it when you weren't expecting yeah. it. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I would kind imagine. Of a, hey. Kind of the, hey, we're going to go pray for these people. You want to come with this? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then it's like, well, I've seen people holding crosses in movies and throwing water and, you know, yeah, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that's exactly the way Jesus would do it. Uh, but uh, what, what are some strategies people should employ if they're in a, in a situation like that, they're asked, you know, come pray for, and maybe like some manifestation stuff starts happening. What are some strategies they should employ um, to help someone get, get free in that kind of situation? Well, I mean, and you, I mean, you, you definitely want to know, you know, if, if your friends happen to ask you, you know, well, let's, we're going to go pray for these people. You know, you, you want to know what, what you're stepping into. Hmm. Uh, so getting a clear picture. Um, and as you know, you know, from having done, deliverance minister yourself you know it's it's you know the prayer is that that's the weapon you know that that's that's the 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 core of the process but it you know it may not happen in one session you know you you have to talk to you know you almost have to build up a kind of you know history of demonization for this particular person um, to really get an, you know, an a- adequate, you know, handle, um, because even Jesus, you know, says that, you know, when his disciples said, well, you know, we've been trying to cast these demons out and yep. in your name and, you know, he said, well, you know, that's all good and well, but, you know, some of these don't come out, you know, initially you have to, you know, it takes things like, like prayer and fasting on your part, apart from the process. Um, so there are all these, you know, there are facets to, you know, the ministerial end of demonology Mm. that, you know, you really have to, you really have to have a handle on, you know, before, you know, some people, I mean, there are people that have, you know, ministries that are devoted entirely to this, but this is, this is within the call of every believer. You know, if people need the ministering, then you know, you know the 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 process is is set out for us right there in the Gospels, and people should be able to to take authority and pray. Uh, you know, right there, uh, if if there are any kinds of you know manifestations uh, that are taking place, or people, you know, if people come come to you asking for help, you know, and it's clear that they're struggling, you know, with this kind of stuff, uh, you know. What, what do you do? You don't, I mean, you don't, you don't turn those people away just because you're not part of a deliverance ministry. You know, we're all called to do that, you know, to some degree or another. Yeah. yeah the, uh, the passage you referenced kind of brings us full circle because that's Mark nine. That's yep. right after the transfiguration. Up yeah, that's on right. Mount Hermon. So, uh-huh. and it's so, I mean, that passage, it's, it's so interesting that, they're evidently trying to cast a demon out without praying. Mm-hmm. And it like, in one sense, it, it blows your mind. Like, how else are you going to do that? But in, yeah. a, but in another sense, it's like, how many times are we in our culture dealing with something that's a demonization, but we're trying with physical means to, not that we shouldn't like take people to the doctor and that kind of stuff, but we're not even, we're, right. not, we're not even praying. We're trying yeah. with physical means to to affect something spiritual, and you right. can't do that. I'd say I'm afraid it's a consequence of of overexposure to a purely naturalistic worldview. You know, um, we, we've even in the church we've lost so much of the supernatural worldview, which which seems impossible. It's I mean it, it taxes your imagination really, and like. Okay, you you know you claim to be a Christian, but um, you know and you're okay with the virgin birth and <laughs> and but you know demons and 
fallen angels and stuff like that, you know, that, that well, it's not a buffet, you know, you can't be selectively supernatural, you know, it's a, it's an all or nothing proposition. And, you know, I think you put it well, you know, it's not that we shouldn't, you know, you know, we have medicine for a reason. Yeah. We have all kinds of, you know, help industries for a reason. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what is it that we're called to our, on our part again and again is to pray mm. and, and to do so unabashedly. Mm. Man, I think you just, you just gave somebody out there a book title, Selectively Supernatural. Like, <laughs> that's pretty good, man. <laughs> <laughs> You got to well, TM I, that. <laughs> no, I don't think I can. My my buddy Mike Heiser was the first person I ever heard say that. Thought, really? And that that's great. I'm going to recycle that. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. really good. Well, um, thank you again for coming on. Do do you have any final words of advice or encouragement for those listening? And and also, if you can remind people where to go to to check out your stuff. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just in, in in terms of of encouragement you know we're, we're called to prove ourselves by study anyway and i think that that's one of the things that's lacking in the disciplines of the faith you know today is that you know biblical literacy has just gone into the tank uh from what it was even you know a decade or two ago um and so it, it takes these disciplines of the faith you know the study of the word uh, because we're supposed to use it i mean that's our you know the, our otherworldly weapon is the word of God. You know, it's it's the original, it's the original lightsaber. It's a, it's it's a, a, a more civilized. What was it? Obi Wan said a more civilized weapon, a more elegant weapon for a more civilized time. Yeah, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, but you know, all kidding aside, um, you know, just just the the disciplines of the faith, the active engagements of the disciplines of the faith is at the core of, of where we need to be heading you know that if if we want another great awakening hmm. uh not just in this country but in, in the world then that's going to have to be the trajectory of the church you know and we're starting to see the onslaught you know have been seeing the onslaught you know for for months and, and years yeah. uh so you know there's no better time than now to do that uh, you know that's part of the reason that i came out of I was called out of academia to start this, the Institute of Biblical Anthropology and why I offer those programs. And mm -hmm. if people want to take advantage of them, again, uh, biblical anthropology, biblical demonology, preternatural morphology, they're all on sale for $125 right now. Uh, the rudiments of New Testament Greek is 250 right now. Um, and people can email me at professorburton at yahoo.com. If they're interested in that, uh, you can follow me on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Um, I've got a, a YouTube channel uh, that I post um, the Beyond Report and Quick Classics and all kinds of stuff like that. I, I need to be doing more Antiquity X because that seems to be the, the most popular format, the, the slides and documentary kind of format. Yeah. And uh, um, the uh, I've got a... a a book that I'm writing with with uh, Dr. Aaron Judkins oh, nice. uh, that'll be out this year on Gobekli Tepe and the Bible. Uh, I've got another one that I'm finishing up on on witchcraft and and another one on uh, uh, these these folkloric demonic manifestations. Should be out this summer. All of those, like the witchcraft uh -huh. and oh man, yeah. Can I have you back on to talk about that? Absolutely, yeah, anytime. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Like, cause I. In addition to going out to Swaziland, I told you about, I've been out to Mozambique um, four times, uh, like right along the Zambezi. My sister-in-law has been a full-time missionary out there for almost 15 years. And so you see so much um, uh, syncretism out there. Mm -hmm, like, absolutely. You, know, the, you, you go to sleep, it goes dark, and, and maybe around like 11 o'clock, you hear the drums. And it's, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, they, it's legit, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's evil, but man, yeah. So I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear about that stuff. So, yeah, absolutely. Awesome, man. Well, thank you again so much, Judd. This is you're, Dr. Burton. This has been just great, man. You're welcome. My, my pleasure. 
that day 